This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program, highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Ben Gideon. Rahul is going to be off this week. I'm really excited to invite to our show a good friend of mine, Tom Keefe. Uh, Tom is a trial lawyer from rural Illinois, the part where you don't hear about the $100 million verdicts every week out of uh, downtown Chicago. Tom is a, a wonderful trial lawyer. He's a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, has many monster verdicts, and has a, a, a great and really successful practice. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. I don't know what's going on with Raul. I think Raul is probably afraid that I would say something stupid, and he just decided he was going to disassociate himself with this podcast. I, I believe that's true. I mean, he he did express some concern about having you on as a guest. I assured him, though, that you would be on your best behavior and it wouldn't be an issue. I would behave just like Panish does. Uh, uh, so it's a pretty low bar. Exactly. Well, you know, we do have a trial lawyer audience, and I think we all like uh, we're all a little rough around the edges, right? Otherwise, we'd be working at a white shoe firm doing uh, corporate defense work or something. That's a good entry point. I always believed that there's a difference between a lawyer and an attorney. I think the reason we do well is because we prosecute our cases against attorney. And I used to define a lawyer as a guy, and I'm just going to use guy generically. So a guy or a, a female lawyer, male lawyer, but a person. Uh, who drank in a tavern. An attorney drinks in a country club. And if somebody insults an attorney's significant other, he leads her or him out the door uh, to avoid any difficulty. And a lawyer uh, breaks a beer bottle over the guy's head. So I think that we're lawyers. And I think that they're attorneys. And I think that in large part, that's a reason why we have the success that we have. Can you tell us just a little bit about the area where you, you practice, that area of the country? What's it like to practice law there? It's changed, Ben. It's changed dramatically. Uh, there was a time, so that folks understand, I practice in Southern Illinois, deep Southern Illinois. Now, the closest city to me is St. Louis, and I could practice in St. Louis, but I've chosen not to. And so we do all of our work in Illinois, and uh, we do a lot of cases in rural communities. And it used to be different than what it is now. The sea change that happened with our juries is the same sea change that happened politically with Trump. I mean, we had counties in downstate Illinois 
And when I talk about downstate Illinois, I'm talking about 150 miles from uh, St. Louis, 200 miles from St. Louis, and not close to anything else. And those communities were what I would call basically blue dog Democrats. And by that, I mean, is that they were working people. And so they would be sympathetic to the, to the issues confronting the working person that were brought before a jury. And then, of course, what's happened in the Trump revolution is, is that all of those people have changed their political beliefs. And so every one of those counties that were, that were blue. Now, when I say blue, I say red dog blue, which is, as you know, Ben, because of your political sophistication, and maybe some of the audience doesn't know, blue dog Democrat is different than a liberal Democrat. Blue dog Democrat basically believes in that they're, they're Democrats. They're conservative Democrats. I guess maybe somebody would call them moderates. Now they've become Trump Republicans. But those people have all changed. And as a result of that, the counties that we practice, we've, it's been palpable. And I, I think I started seeing it in about 2014. If I was going to predict what happened in 16, I would have been gauging it on what I was seeing with juries in 2013-14. And so we're really left with just one county. And that's the county that, that we live in, which is St. Clair County. St. Clair County has still managed to stay kind of blue. They're not nearly as blue as they were. But beyond that, our entire practice area uh, is now a sea of red. And, uh, and it's had a real impact, not just on the jury, but also on the judges, because the judges now that are being elected, uh, you know, tend to be Republican. The appellate court, where we used to have our cases heard, used to be one of the most liberal appellate courts in the state. Now, by far, it's the most conservative. So there's been a lot of changes. When, when I first started out, it was easier than it has become now. Have you found effective ways to talk to the more conservative or uh, MAGA uh, Trump jurors that they, that they respond to? Or yes. you haven't, well, how, how, do you, how do you do that? Well, well, in the first place, you know, as you know, when you say you figure it out, Ben, we never figure anything out. I mean, what we do is is that we we move towards solutions, but you know nobody ever completely figures out a jury, and that's why we call it the practice of law, you know, as opposed to the science of law. But yeah, we I mean, we there's certainly strategies that we're using now. One of the things that we use that seems to work pretty well in in our downstate trial, we talk about things now in terms of freedoms. So what we talk about, because that's that's a word that that resonates with the with those people. And just to set this up and give you some context, in Southern Illinois, people during the vaccine and during the COVID mandates, if a local business person followed the, the law that came out of Springfield or came out of Chicago with Governor Pritzker and closed his bar or his restaurant, then no one would ever patronize it when the COVID virus was over. I mean, that's the God's truth. And so bars and restaurants would just, you know, continuously in downstate just ignore the restrictions on closing. They would ignore the mask mandate. Why? Because they thought that this represented some kind of an encroachment on their freedom, their freedom to not wear a mask, their freedom to stay open during the COVID crisis. Those are, they, they regard these things as personal freedoms. And so what we have had to do now in terms of framing the issues is we have to suggest to the jury that what they did to my guy, my client, is that they took away his freedom to move. 
They took away his freedom to drive his car. They took away his freedom to shoot his gun or to hunt deer or to do all of those things. We found one of the things that's helped us a lot is reframing that identical issue. I mean, we read all this stuff at other guys in the inner circle who've written so well and extensively on it, like Keenan, and of course, especially Friedman, on those things that resonate with juries. The so-called lizard uh, principle, the reptile principle, does that still apply? It does, but they don't necessarily believe us as much on the reptile principle, but they will accept the framing of freedom right now because they believe that their freedoms are under assault. And so if you could associate a defendant with someone who is part and parcel of this gigantic conspiracy to rob us all of our freedom, then you're more likely to uh, to get them to uh, to go with your client. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about recently how we've had this, it seems like, trend of nuclear, you know, monster verdicts around the country. And I wonder what's driving that, whether it's... Um, there's a political dimension to it, or it's, it's kind of a backlash to the to the pent up frustration people had coming through the pandemic. Do you have any thoughts about why we're seeing such a? And it's not just anecdotal. I've I've spoken to folks in the insurance industry, and one person I spoke to the other day said this is the topic of conversation now at their you know national meetings and and when they get into group chats about their industry that there is this uh, trend towards these nuclear verdicts, verdicts that are enormously high, right? We just saw that in the Alex Jones case, almost a billion dollars. Right. You referenced Rick Friedman. He just had a another yet another multi-hundred million dollar verdict, but but it's going that- By Zoom. Right. I wonder, do, do you have thoughts about what, what's driving this trend now? I think that there's a couple of things, Ben, and part of what I do when, as you point out, when it becomes a topic of conversation, what's driving the nuclear verdict. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll read what they're saying is driving the nuclear verdict because whatever they think that's driving the nuclear verdict said, I want to do more of that. <laughs> and so, <laughs> oh, this is why we're getting, that's why we're getting dinged. And I think that that's part of it. I think a lot of it has to do, to be honest with you, a lot of it has to do with not being afraid to ask. I mean, there was always, an, and particularly your listeners, and this is a good thing, it's, a, it's a, um, a podcast because your listeners, of course, aren't able to see how old and, and decrepit I am. And, and, and I do have a face that was probably not even built for radio. But I've been around this, this, um, the law business for a long time. And there was a long period of time where there was a fear for asking about big money. The idea being we qualify the jury. And as the years have gone on, more and more judges allow you to qualify the juries for more money. So I think that certainly, you know, that's been part of what this has become. It, it's become a part of, of being able to qualify the jury for big money. In the past, as I said, the conventional wisdom is if you ask for too much, it would backfire. Now I think what people, you know, they use that expression anchoring. Now I think that what we've learned, and particularly with mock juries, focus groups, and so forth, is that they expect you to ask for a lot of money. And you ask for $150 million, people are not going to go crazy over that. They still might in certain parts of the community. I mean, and you know, with, with, with this, this monster verdict thing that you're talking about, they're definitely happening. But, you know, for, for example, Josh's verdict, which is, you know, what's a huge, huge verdict. 
But, you know, that was kind of a special case, and it occurred literally in the backyard of where it happened. I can't even begin to explain how Friedman is kicking these things out on, on Zoom. I have no idea. Friedman responded to a recent uh, missive of yours and said, well, because you said, hey, uh, Rick, how are you doing this? And he didn't give you a lot of secrets, but he said Monsanto is just really a bad actor. Wow, what a what a magnificent insight that is. I mean, and here all these years, I thought Monsanto was a perfect corporate citizen. But I think a lot of it has to do with that. And I think that part of it has to do with this. I don't always assume, Ben, that a Trump juror is a bad juror. I try to figure out what a Trump juror, what's going to appeal to a Trump juror. Trump jurors don't like corporations any more than we like corporations. If you frame the corporation as something that a MAGA person would not like. So I think that that's also a part of it. But yeah, they are. And then there's a third piece. And the third piece is post-COVID. So nobody has really studied the effect, the collective effect on all of these jurors as a result of uh, being cooped up for two or three years. And I don't know that I can draw a correlation between the two other than temporal correlation, that it seems like a lot of these big numbers have emerged as jurors, you know, who have been basically on the sidelines for the last two or three years because courts have been closed, you know, are coming out. But I think that juries are, juries think stuff in, in, in this country is unfair, Ben. And you know what? They're right. It is unfair. The haves are having more and more. The have-nots are having less and less. If, if you get 12 people and you only need three or four of them that are really angry about what they believe is the inherent unfairness of America, they're always going to take it out of the big guy. And I think that some people are tapping in to that as well. And um, a lot of it also has there's one other feature. The verdicts come out of different jurisdictions. For example, in Illinois, we're required to get a unanimous verdict, 12 out of 12. You know, a lot of states, 9 out of 12. A lot of states, 5 out of 6. And I think maybe, you know, there could also be that situation where if you need nine out of 12, you're more likely to have nine people as opposed to all 12 people agreeing on a particular topic, which in turn also generates some large numbers. What do you think? Well, I agree with most of what you said. I also think, and maybe it's similar to what you were saying, but I feel like people are really yearning for that social interaction and opportunity to come together with other right. people in a community because they've been isolated so long and juries give them that opportunity. But when people come together to do something positive, that usually helps the plaintiff. When people feel they're disassociated with one another, alienated and uh, fractionalized, they break apart and that tends to help the, the defense. So I feel like we are in that sort of moment in time where people, you know, you see that. I just did a trial and I, and you see the jury, they, they actually look like they're enjoying the opportunity to be there, to be together with right. other human beings and to associate with people and to work on something they believe to be a, an important issue that uh, has a, some social justice kind of ramifications to it. And maybe it's because we all feel a little bit helpless that, but when you're on a jury for, for that moment in time, you have a little bit of power, you feel less helpless. But the way you exercise the power is to help the good guys, because if you go against the plaintiff, then you really, you're leaving your power on the table. You're not doing anything with it. I don't know. 
I agree. I think those are all, I, I agree with that. And I do think that we're saying the same thing about the pandemic. On the other hand, this pent up desire of helplessness and to exert power, I hadn't thought of that. So that's a good point. That's why, of course, you make the big money. Uh, and you <laughs> went right. to Yale and I went to Southwestern Illinois College. No, I didn't. I actually went to a real school, but not by much. But uh, I think that's a good point. So, Tom, that, that's a good segue. Can we go back and, and find out a little bit more about your background? What is your, how did you get into this business and uh, where, where did you start? And kind of take us a little bit along your, your journey to where you are today. It's been kind of a strong, it's like a Grateful Dead song. It's been like a, a long, strange trip. I was raised the oldest son of seven of an Irish Catholic defense lawyer. My dad represented defendants in workers' comp cases. He was a child of the Depression, didn't trust banks, and raised me to be a plaintiff's lawyer, even though he was a defense lawyer. And uh, he had an amazing capacity for work. And I might also have an amazing capacity for liquor. And I kind of think I inherited both of those uh, things, although the liquor's kind of messing with my stomach, so I may go back to pot. But he would go downstairs and he would work in the basement. I would wait up for him. He'd come up at midnight and then he would talk to me. And he used to talk to me about Reveille for Radicals, Saul Lansky's famous book. And he would talk to me about the rights of working people. And he would talk to me about corporations being evil, even though all this time he's representing all of these people. And he'd come up and, and he'd drink, you know, he'd drink and I'd sit and I'd just lap it up. So I then, you know, and then when I was 16, I had a job, even though my dad was a lawyer and we went to school in a depressed area, East St. Louis, Illinois. So that meant that my dad, who was a defense lawyer, that kind of made me the richest guy in the entire class. So you give you an idea how, how low the bar was. But I always had a job. And I, from the day I was 16, I had a job. I worked in the steel factories when I was 18. And uh, worked there for uh, several years. And my old man's philosophy was, if you're going to represent working people, you have to work with working people. So basically, he raised me to become a plaintiff's lawyer. And I uh, went to school. And when it came time to, to pick a college, and my Uncle Dick was a dean of admissions at St. Louis U, my dad said, you can go any place uh, you want to. And so then I got into Dartmouth. And I said, I think I'd like to go to Dartmouth. He goes, no, no. When I said you could go any place you wanted to, I meant Catholic and preferably Jesuit. So I ended up at Boston College and I enjoyed it. And, and my dad believed, because I'm from the middle of the country, that, uh, and I think it's, it's true then as it's now, he believed that a kid from the Midwest should go get educated on the East Coast because he believed then, and I still think it's true now, that the country is still essentially run on a corridor that begins in Boston and ends in DC. It's about a 500 mile corridor. It still has 20% of the population. And of course, Boston has education and Connecticut has the insurance industry. New York has everything else except what Washington has, which of course is uh, government and Philadelphia has client inspector. This is where America was uh, moving and shaking. They have the Liberty Bell too. And they, also, well, they, they do have that. And some called the Declaration of Independence, and minor stuff, but beyond that. Now, if Rahul were here, he might be making the case for California, but we can leave that aside right now. California has certainly emerged, hasn't it? Uh, all they have to do is figure out a way where they're going to get their water. The people that I represent are convinced that the Californians are going to steal all of our water. <laughs> they, think, <clears throat> they think they're coming and they're looking for the Mississippi, uh, that we're under attack. But and so I went to school there, and then 
I took a year off between college and law school because I, uh, like Jack Kerouac, uh, went in search of truth and beauty. I had a 69 Dodge Monaco, and I went on the road, uh, and I eventually ran out of money in D.C., and I was bigger then, so I worked as a doorman at a bar called Clyde's in Georgetown, uh, which was famous for where Hamilton Jordan spit the peach brandy Alexander on a customer during the Carter administration, and I worked as a temporary. Then I got a job on Capitol Hill, and I worked there for a year and loved politics. Then I decided to come back to St. Louis uh, to go to law school. So I went to St. Louis U because I knew that's where my classmates would be. I graduated high in my class, so I took a job with a large law firm, a firm called Hush Eppenberger, uh, because they paid the most, and I lasted exactly nine months. On a bet, Pete Hush was a senior partner, really nice man, but on a bet, they bet me that I wouldn't goose him, so I goosed him. And after that, uh, my my career at the, well, he's pretty goosey too, because you know, usually the older guys, the trick is, are they still goosey? But his figure was still working, so he jumped, and then I, of course, left. And I hung a shingle on the east side. And uh, this was at about 19, I don't know, 1980, 81, something like that. And I practiced. Uh, Wait, can we just go back to this point for one moment? The Pete Hush part? The goosing your senior partner. How did this go down? Because this is actually kind of a, an important point, I think. Well, I don't know how important it is, but I will say this. This story has the additional benefit of being true. There are, of course, some stories that, you know, might contain a grain of truth, but this one is really true. There was a guy, Hush of a Burger, which is now, you know, it's a large firm, I think it's called Hush Blackwell. But there was a guy in the firm back then, uh, one of the, an older lawyer, because I was just, I've been there nine months. I kind of misbehave. I'm a little, uh, uh, you know, I just do things that uh, seem like that they're kind of funny at the time, impetuous, like, Somebody offers me a lot of money. Ah, oh, let's not take that. You know, let's just try it. And, pe and being impetuous can help you in the troubles. And so the guy bet me 50 bucks, which was a lot of money back there, that I wouldn't goose Pete Hush. So we had the building, the, the office was on the 18th floor of the Boltman's Bank building. And uh, so I said, oh, screw it, I'll do it. So he put the 50 bucks up and Pete's walking down the hallway and I just went up behind him and I just goosed him. And uh, he jumped, and it, it, he was really kind of offended by it. I didn't really think it was that big a deal. Uh, now, they didn't fire me. I did leave of my own accord because uh, I just didn't do well with, the, say, Coach Ty's timesheets and authority. It just wasn't for me. So I came to the east side. We didn't have any business because my dad was a defense lawyer, and Ritzy uh, worked during the day. She was my secretary at night. I had a building, uh, an office in the basement of a dentist's office, 397-6000 was our phone number. We got a lot of calls early in the morning because 397-5000 was the number of the local high school. So we got a lot of calls like Johnny can't come in today. And you'd hear kids trying to give this deep voice like they're acting like they were parents. And I would say to them, you're not fooling me. You get him to school. Uh, and uh, uh, we got a lot of calls then. Uh, but then eventually, you know, we started to get some cases, not plaintiff's cases. We just do anything. Uh, and there was a guy named Jack Randall. He used to pay me five hundred. He could pay me a hundred dollars to take a medical deposition for him. Uh, and I'd go to his office. I'd get the file. I'd take his medical deposition, take it back, and we got four or five of those a week. We made five hundred bucks. Uh, Ricci was my secretary at night, and it just uh, we just got lucky. Got uh, got some big verdicts, and uh, you know, Ben, as you know, I believe that lawyers take too much credit when they win and too much blame when they lose. If you got a decent case, you got a decent case. I think good lawyers make a big difference on hard cases, and I think good lawyers will get more money on the same case. 
but you know, you get some good cases. And uh, I had a, I got a big verdict before I was 30, and that kind of made me a little bit of a, a quirk here in uh, Southern Illinois. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, we, we started developing some business. And then I went in and practiced with a guy named Bruce Cook for uh, some couple of years well, to, to finish my journey, you know, my journeyman until I could become my apprenticeship. Uh, and then in 19, I don't know, 90 or so, uh, just came out and hung a shingle practiced by myself until the kids came along. And uh, that's our story. That's our story. Are there cases or particular trials that are kind of the most memorable for you or you think helped to make you the kind of the lawyer you are, develop, develop that reputation that you've acquired? You know, obviously, you know, when you do, and of course there's a couple of things that happen when you get to be as old as I am, your memory starts to fade. But yes, when we first were trying cases, Ben, is that trials, you got to verdict a lot, man. I mean, you you know, in the in the beginning, I mean, there'd be years, and I'm not talking about criminal cases, there would be years, you know, back in those days, you might get to verdict 10 or 15, 20 times a year. I mean, you might go to trial twice a month. Now, they weren't these monster cases, you know, but when you're cutting your teeth, you know, you're trying two hundred thousand dollar, two hundred fifty thousand dollar auto cases. They're offering you seventy five grand. You get two hundred and fifty. Then suddenly they're starting to think, well, how is he doing this? And then the two hundred fifty thousand dollar case turns into the five hundred thousand dollar case. And then one thing leads to another. Probably the the uh, one of the cases that I can remember that I think kind of jump started me was a case called Roger Grimming versus Monsanto, and it was in nineteen eighty. I'm going to guess and say maybe 1985, 86. And it was a case against Monsanto and a backside kicker against the railroad. And Roger had bad history. He had had a, couple, a history with the prior double operated back. You know, he was working. He fell off a bad sill step. I sued Monsanto as a product defendant. And then I sued the railroad. And they offered me $250,000. And I said, well, I can't take that. Roger's got a really bad back. He can't work. And they said, well, you don't understand. That's what we pay in these cases. And so I tried the case and got a $4 million verdict. That was a big verdict back here, back then, by somebody my age. And it kind of became newsworthy. And I think that that really kind of helped jumpstart when Breezy and I were practicing by ourselves. It's really started to jumpstart what we had. And then, you know, as I said, I learned a lot from Brute. And uh, then in 1992, you know, I had a pretty good book of business. And, uh, came out, hung our shingle, and uh, and practiced by myself. I was always a big proponent, Ben, all the way back in 1990 when I first started, 89. I did all of my depots by telephone because I was a solo practitioner, and we had four kids, and I wanted to be home at night. And as a solo practitioner, I might be taking a deposition of an expert in New York at 10 o'clock in the morning and an expert in L.A. at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Absent a time machine, I couldn't be in both places at once. But doing them by telephone, I could see the kids' ball game that night, or I could sleep in my own bed. And so I also think that was a critical piece of why we were able to get the success that we were able to get for a number of years, just practicing totally by ourselves, no associates, no nothing. You were definitely ahead of the curve on that one, because most of us do depositions by Zoom, at least now, and have cut down greatly on our, our travel time and the expense 
and uh, dislocation associated with constant travel, but it sounds like you were doing that for years. I started doing it in 1989. I came off the road. In the beginning, you know, when you're first starting to practice, it's kind of fun. You know, it's kind of it's kind of fun to say, well, I'm going to be in Philadelphia tonight. I'm going to have dinner at Bookbinders. I'm going to be in Chicago. I'm going to have dinner at this place. After a while, that gets old, man. I mean, life on the road just really does get old. And uh, it's kind of the El Elton John song, you know, is that uh, when he's talking about just life again on another, you know, holiday in. It's like the George Clooney movie, remember, Up in the Air? Yeah. Who wants that kind of life to, to know that the line that you want to get in is the line that where the people are going to wear loafers so they don't have to lace up their shoes? I'm not interested in having that kind of knowledge. I'm more interested in going home at night. So I used to do it all the time. I would be chastised for doing it. Our good friend, and if you know my my very, very close friend, Joe Power, used to just give me grief about it all the time. And he'd say, well, how do you know that they aren't passing notes? I said, I don't. I said, if they're cheating, God will get even with them. They'll stick it up their ass. So I've done it and, and continue to do it. The Zoom thing is a new thing. And a lot of times I won't even just take the position by phone, even if I have Zoom. I just take a look at the person and then uh, and go from there. But I had lots of cases, Ben, where when I would, back in the day, you know, you videotape the deposition. A lot of an expert, the first time I ever saw them, ever knew what they looked like, was when I put the VCR in the, in the box before the jury heard them. I didn't know what they looked like, I, you know, because I, I just did it all remotely. At some point, you started to do medical malpractice cases. How, how did you get into that? And, and um, what is your approach to, to doing those types of cases? I started doing MALPs and, and back when I was a, a partner with, with Bruce. And he would say to me, why do you want to prove negligence against somebody that a jury loved when you can prove strict liability against somebody a jury hates? Back then, we had more products cases, too, of course, and premises cases. I said, because somebody's got to do it. And I was always interested in medicine because, recall, my dad was a comp defense lawyer. Comp lawyers know medicine. I mean, we used to sit around the table, and if we weren't talking about the St. Louis Cardinals, we were talking about the anatomy of the spine. And because, you know, that's what comp lawyers do. I mean, and, and a good comp defense lawyer, I'd be more worried about him cross-examining one of my treaters in a bad case than I would anybody else, because that's what they do every single day. So I had a real interest in medicine. And then when the malpractice stuff came along, they're challenging. I mean, they're they're challenging. I don't tend to like a lot of paper discovery. It drives me crazy. With malpractice cases, you don't tend to have a lot of paper discovery. You get your medical records and, and you go. And I believe that uh, the other reason was nobody else was doing them. You know, Ben, most people will do a malpractice case, get their asses handed to them, and then it's like they've just touched a hot stove and they don't want anything to do with one of those cases again because they're hard. Doctors have home court advantage. It's their medical, their medical records. We all know about the double secret probation promise that all doctors make, not to say shit, they have a mouthful about another doctor. And they present real jury issues, especially for us in small communities, because the juries believe that if they return a verdict against the doctor, they're going to lose their health care. Because you got to remember, down in deep southern Illinois, they, there are not a lot of doctors who are willing to go down there and practice. And add to that the average juror. You got 12 people sitting on the jury. Now, you might have one person who's had a bad experience with the doctor, but the other, the other 11 have had good experiences, right? 
Mrs. Jones is juror number four. Johnny was sick last night. She called Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith called in medicine. Johnny feels better. Mrs. Smith loves doctors, or Mrs. Jones loves doctors. So, you know, they were a chance to get a lot of trial, for one thing. You know, I mean, if you do a lot of FELA cases, they're just offering your money and they're paying you. But you get to try a lot of malpractice cases. And they're challenging, uh, I believe. And I think that uh, they're fun. But basically, even to this day, we don't really compete with a lot of people for malpractice cases because people don't want to do them. And they probably comprise about 40 or 50% of what we do. And don't you do a lot of MELPs? It's 60, 70% of what we do. So yes, yeah. that that's mostly what we do. I, obviously, they're hard cases and all of the challenges are increased in difficult venues like where you practice. So how do you approach those cases to make them compelling to the types of juries that you're talking to about these cases? You know, but that's a really good question. And it's in because if you believe in, uh, as I think we all did uh, before Don Keenan wrote a book about it, we always kind of understood what Keenan was talking about. We always understood that what motivated a jury was to make the case about something that was going to threaten them. And so the thing that makes malpractice cases difficult, especially in the rural communities, is it isn't just the threat of tort reform, you know, and it's, it's if we return a verdict, then our, the price of our medical care is going to go up, which is the classic argument, and therefore juries are going to be opposed to it because it's against their self-interest. You also have that other issue of if you return a verdict, that you might drive this doctor out of the community. You can flip-flop that. And a lot of times the way I'll approach those cases down there is, is that I will try to suggest because so many people in rural communities right now, which is part of why I believe they've embraced Trumpism, they feel like second-class citizens. They feel like no one has listened to them. They feel like they've been mistreated. They feel like our party, the Democratic Party, is a party of the elitists that live on the East Coast and the West Coast, and they have forgotten about all these, these small people in the Midwest. And so what I try to do when I'm picking a jury is I try to associate myself with them and say, hey, they're screwing us. And they're not only screwing us, but they're screwing us because there's, we, we, we're getting bad doctors in our community. And as a result of these bad doctors in our community is, is that what they're doing is, is that they're causing, we're getting substandard care. Why is it that we have to get substandard care? And what I try to do is to try to make the jury understand that by returning a verdict, it will improve the quality of medical care that they're getting. So there is a feeling of a, with a lot of rural jurors that they're victims. I mean, they just they just feel like they've been screwed by the by whoever. And if you can if you can make it, the other thing to remember is this: they see these hospitals, even in small communities, they're big buildings. And so if you have a small community and you have a hospital defendant, you know, they're thinking to themselves, well, that's that place that charged me $2,200 when I had to go to the emergency room in the middle of the night because my doctor wasn't answering the phone or wasn't on call. How are they able to pay for that? Well, they paid for it with that $2,200 bill they charged you for the ED visit. So I think, again, you have to look at the jury and you have to feel, figure out how they're looking at the world and then associate yourself with and or appeal to that point of view that they have about the world. And that's what a lot of people in the Midwest think. They just think is that we're victims. Well, 
than join in that victimhood and make what the defendant did, even if it's a local doctor, something that makes them yet another victim is going to subject them to yet another scrutiny. Remember, a lot of the people we represent down here, you know what the major industry was in Southern Illinois? Coal. Coal, baby, coal. And so those communities, that those were the high-paying job that drove those communities. And those coal miners made good money. That, in turn, allowed the restaurant to be open. That, in turn, allowed them to have a theater. That, in turn, because those people had money to spend. Those coal mines are all closed down. Why? Well, it's fairly obvious why. I mean, they, they pollute the environment. The product is defective, but not in their mind. And so... That's really one of the things that we found Southern Illinois is, is that the, those people, they feel like they've been the victim. And uh, that's one of the techniques I've tried to use insofar as uh, trying to make my jury and try to get my jury to associate more with my client, who's one of them, as opposed to the doctor who, you know, you can kind of suggest to them may be part of this. Like, Ben, it's really amazing if you live in the Midwest as opposed to, and perhaps you see it in Connecticut, how many conspiracy theorists there are? <laughs> I mean, I mean the, the Mel Gibson movie a, a million years ago, and I'm not a Mel Gibson fan by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, he did this, this movie where, you know, everything was a conspiracy. I got news for you, man. There's a lot of people who feel that way. So you got to get yourself on the right side of the conspiracy if you're going to make a link with those 12 people in Carmi, Illinois. Yeah, I mean, I, I've thought some about how to manage conspiracy theory thinking in, in a courtroom, and it is kind of a scary proposition that there's a lot of folks who have strong opinions that may not be factually based or grounded in reality. And if you're trying to present a case that's really about the facts, I think historically what we did as lawyers, we presented the facts or we argued the facts. But if people question facts, that certainly requires you to think through about wh whether just presenting the cases as fact is still a viable approach uh, with all jurors. I mean, many jurors, I think, still live in a fact-based universe. But what I, th what I hear you saying is by talking about, you know, they are trying to screw us, you're building in the possibility that there are jurors that that are entertaining some larger worldview that, you know, somebody's out to get them, whoever that somebody is, you know? And, you, and then I, I hear what you're saying is you're tying that to the corporation, to the medical establishment, and then showing how the argument they're making, which is that people in this small community don't deserve quality medical care Maybe it's okay for Mr. Defense Lawyer who gets his medical care in St. Louis, but he's going to come up here to this small town and tell you, you don't deserve the same level of care that they get in the big city, right? We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com. And by Law Pods. Law Pods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. Absolutely. It's an us them.
that's what's happened. You know, we all talk about that. That's how polarized we've become. It's us versus them. So if you're going to go try a jury case in a community that looks at it that way, us versus them, then you have to make yourself us. You can't make yourself them. And you have to frame the case in such a way that that's, and that's, that's really how it is. Now, I also do- And the, the truth is that the defense has been doing that for years because, as you point out, what they do in malpractice cases in small communities, it's they, they come in and say, we here in our community depend on our, our hospital. You bet. Everybody in this community needs this hospital. Right. We, we depend on our doctors, and they embrace this as a fight between the plaintiff who's greedy and wants money and the medical, you know, the local medical community that is there to protect the people in that community. So all, all we're really doing is trying to turn that on its head. It's not that we thought of this. The defense actually has been using this tactic for years. That's a good point. And really what you do when they bring that in, and of course, again, you make another good point. And that is just that when we go down, the cases that I tend to do, so no, I, they're not going to be defended by a local lawyer. They're going to be defended by somebody out of Chicago or out of St. Louis or, or, or even, you know, New York at Denver's this new one, Wheeler, Trigger, whatever the hell their name is, where they parachute in and save the day. Actually, what they do is that, you know, they're like a slot machine. You just put it in a quarter and you pull it, you know, and they just pay like it's all cherries. But I always think it's kind of funny how they, they parachute in. But that's right. All we're trying to do is to do a variation on a theme. And then when they say, you know, they're trying to they're trying to attack our local hospitals or local doctors, I just say, no, we're not. What we're trying to do is to make certain that you actually get quality, local, good quality, local doctors and good quality local hospitals. And if you want quality or do you want to just take the leftovers, what what, what falls off the table comes down here to southern Illinois. And again, they're victims. And if you can make it because they feel that way. We don't have time in a trial to disabuse them of those feelings. We can't. I mean, it would be in a perfect world. We'd love to explain to people that, you know, it really doesn't work this way. And it isn't so much as us versus them mentality. We don't have that. So if you don't have it, then use it because you only got 10 days, you know, in which to use it. And you're not going to change it. So you may as well get on board. So you've been doing this a little while, as you mentioned, uh, although I I disagree. I think you're a very handsome man who would do perfectly well on well on television yeah. and so forth. Well, yeah, but that works out. No, I've been hit with the ugly stick. Yeah, you know, we have an expression down in Southern Illinois. I'm so ugly I could knock a buzzard off a gut wagon at 20 paces. So I mean, you know, it's all right. You don't have to. You don't have to pull such that way. So I've got. I've been hit with the stick, brother. I've just been hit, but I do have a lot of money, uh, and I'm funny, and so it gives me a fighting chance. So let me let me ask you about the funny part because you definitely work work humor into your practice and your interactions with humans and people. And I was reading a deposition that you did uh, recently, and there was a little bit of humorous banter back and forth, which I enjoyed. But what what role do you think humor plays in what we do? Is it is it more an outlet for decompressing and kind of relieving the the stress of the moment, or do you find that it's also a useful tool? For instance, do you uh, do you use humor in the courtroom? Do you uh, uh, joke around at all with the with the witnesses or with the jury? Yes. What, what's the role of humor generally as a trial lawyer? I don't think that you can answer that question of a trial lawyer. I think it has to be of a particular trial lawyer. I mean, 
The most basic tenet, in my opinion, of trying a lawsuit is recognizing two important facts. One is, is that those 12 people are the, collectively the smartest person in the room. You're not going to fool all 12 of them. And so if you have a personality, which is by nature, I've always kind of thought life, you know, life was absurd. So I've just always <laughs> taken this humorous approach and said, well, this is kind of stupid. And or this is kind of funny. And if that's how you are, and they think to themselves, it's not an act. This guy's just kind of a funny guy. It's like, remember uh, uh, Goodfellas uh, when uh, Henry Hill tells a joke and then he and, uh, and he says to Nicky Santoro, he says, uh, you're a funny guy. And he looks at Nicky, looks at him, he goes, funny, haha. I mean, do I, am I here to amuse you? And uh, and then, of course, uh, Henry Hill gets kind of a little bit worried about because Nicky, of course, is nuttier than a pet coon. If that's your style, if you're light, if you if you if you're self-deprecating, if that's who you are, it'll work because that's who you are. So I don't think it's a question of somebody saying, "Okay, I got to look at my trial a book of tricks," and I I think I need to pull out humor, because if that's not who you are by nature, then you're not going to fool all twelve jurors. Somebody's going to think you're full of shit, and if you're full of shit, then of course. You know, if the message is full of shit, there's no way in the world they're going to buy the message. I just have always thought that life's kind of funny. I just don't. I, th I think too many people take themselves too seriously. And as a result of that, you know, that is why I use a lot of humor. I, I make fun of stuff. I, I think stuff is kind of funny. And it serves me well, but only if uh, I think it'll, it serves me well because the jury thinks, well, that's just who this guy is. There is my late wife, Ritzy, used to say, you know, I said, Ritzy, I said, I used to tell her, I said, uh, honey, do you love me? She goes, kind of. But uh, she goes, you know, you are a real whack job. You know, that's just kind of the way I am. And uh, and I think juries like it. It'll give you also, incidentally, Ben, so that you know, if that's what you do, and I do a lot of it, and I, it's self-deprecating, mostly make fun of myself, which it, you know, as anybody knows me, it's pretty easy. I'm a pretty easy target to make fun of. And you'll have a good idea how you're doing with the trial. Because if you have the jury and you make a joke and about nine of the jurors are laughing and smiling, you're heading in the right direction, baby. I mean, it gives you a good, it gives you a good idea is, is that if they're laughing when you're laughing and if they're frowning when you're frowning, then at that stage of the game, I think that you, uh, when they come to you with the over-under, you tell them to stick it up their ass and just say, let's find out how much they're going to really give us. Have you ever had it backfire on you? Well, I guess, well, obviously nobody wins all their trials. So I don't know whether it's some of the cases that I've lost are a product of uh, that backfiring on me, or maybe I just had a bad case. I've had one thing that's backfired on me, uh, and I have to always be very careful of it. The only skill that God uh, gave me, I think, it, you know, it's cross-examination. I really like to cross-examine witnesses. And the thing that I have found is that you got to be careful because it's a gift. It's a skill set. And if you abuse it, particularly against a defendant doctor, the, the, the juries will, will, will accept it with an expert. They figure the expert's been paid a whole bunch of money. So, you know, I mean, if you want to beat the hell out of him in front of the jury, that's fair game. He's getting paid for that. But I do, what has backfired on me is just that if I, if I beat the defendant doctor up too much, that's backfired on me. I, I mean, I've had, you know, I've had, I've had a case or two 
where the jury has been, the verdict has been pulled down because 11 people loved it, but one person was offended because they thought that I was too hard on the doctor who was, after all, not being paid to take this kind of abuse. So I, that more than anything is what I've had to be more careful about is... Uh, Are you super aggressive in the yes, way you cross? Yeah, I am. Can you g give us a sense for what when I, what, how you do that? I believe, in, I believe if we're going to stay and talk about malpractice cases, we have the ability in Illinois, and I'm, I'm sure other states, but in Illinois, where I can call um, every every case, virtually every case I tried to Illinois State Court, the first witness I'm going to call is going to be the, either defendant or a corporate representative of them to a corporation uh, on a products case or whatever. They're my first witness. The witness who is the target. And I get very aggressive uh, with them in the beginning in order to, how do I say, potty train them. Or I'll do it in the deposition. So because, you know, we take a deposition, we forget about it. If a witness is just given their first, a party defendant's given his first deposition, that's going to be an experience that they're going to be thinking about a lot. So, I mean, how they get treated in the deposition will also color how they're going to feel about you when you get in front of a jury. But, yeah, I think that being aggressive, particularly with expert witnesses, how do you do it? Well, first thing you always have to do more than anything is that you got to be, you got to feel really confident that you can do what it is that you're going to do. And the, and, and a, a lawyer's confidence is directly proportional to how prepared the lawyer is to do what it is he wants to do. If a person, if a guy is really prepared, guy meaning male or female, I use the word guy generically, but if a person is really prepared and they know the medicine and they know what the book is on this guy, then I don't ever mess around with, uh, uh, when I start with a witness is that they, they've already been introduced to the jury by their by by their client. So I just say, state your name. And I'll say, now, would you tell me why in the hell that nurse called you and you ignored her call three times? And of course, they, you know, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about what you did wrong here. I mean, look right here. This baby was in distress and the nurse called you three times. What were you doing? Well, a lot of times... <laughs> They they think, well, wait a second, isn't there supposed to be foreplay before, you know, we have the act of sex? And I said, no, let's just go straight to the act of sex. Uh, and then Teddy KGB said a quickie and get out of it. And I think that, uh, uh, yes, but at the same time, then you make a joke or two so that you haven't painted yourself as this monster bully. But at the same time, you know, you can joke and self-deprecate uh, somewhere along the way and take down the tension level and then take it back up again. And I think so much of winning a case, particularly with that first witness, is convincing the jury that you, like a conductor, have the ability to try to affect the mood uh, in the courtroom. And then at that point, you know, they'll start to look at you maybe as an emotional leader for them as much as uh, a, a mouthpiece for the other side. That's interesting. I, Do you like to be aggressive? I'm pretty aggressive. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I'm tactful about it, but I, I am pretty aggressive on cross. And that's an interesting way to go. You know, I've thought about that. I've got a, a case coming up where that approach could work with a doctor, a neurosurgeon who didn't come in after being called and the patient was in a steep decline with their neurofunction and became paralyzed. So one approach would be to start by saying to her, you know, you were contacted at four in the morning and were told about your patient. Why didn't you come in? Why didn't, why right. did you go back to bed? What the heck did you do? Right. I guess the question about that though, is that that is the key point and that's the big moment. 
uh, where do you go from there? You don't know until you get their answer. Because, well, I know the answer. I've, I've covered that well, no, well, already. You, well, except that sometimes what, what you do if you covered that, but I mean, when you say, where do you go from there? It it depends on the answer. And if she says, well, I, because that nurse uh, frequently calls me and it's a, it's a false alarm and, you know, and, uh, or I told her to, to watch, or I told her to do this, or I told her to do that. You always go back to the same issue, don't you? Is, is that you say to the doctor is, is that what if that was your mom? You know, what if somebody had called you about your mom? Would you have gone back to sleep then? Well, no, I'd have gotten. Up. I would what? assume that would that would trigger an objection. Now you know as well as I do, Ben. Is it's objections or objections? <laughs> I, I, I mean, know. I tell know. the jury to disregard. Sure. Uh, I, now, Ben, I'm going to do this exercise with you. I do not want you to think about a cow. I'll guarantee you're thinking about a cow right now. You tell a jury, you ask a question, and when you get a witness, the jury's told to disregard. There's about as much chance of disregarding that as you know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's that it's going to going to rain in the morning. So it's, uh, but you know, I the, just can't get the cow out of my mind. So I mean, yeah, that's how you stuck with the cow, aren't you? But look yeah. at the bright side. I mean, now because you guys are on the East Coast, you get guys from the Midwest up in the middle of the night. I'm very nocturnal, but you have to understand. Get up at seven o'clock in the morning for me is kind of culture shock and. Uh, so right as soon as this is over, I'm going to have a glass of milk, and uh, we'll see. Uh, and go back to bed? No, I can't go back to bed. i got to do uh, some more. But the point is, is that you are right. But again, a lot of it has to be is what is what is your style? And so, you know, if you go right at the doctor, coming right out of the box, for example, I mean, not a lot of foreplay, but just to, to establish the points that you want to make, the jury appreciates that. Contrary to, but this is one of the biggest mistakes that lawyers make. Contrary to popular belief, the juries have a life outside of your case. They want you to get to the point. I mean, it, they want you. They, they don't want you to waste their time. They don't want you to keep asking the same question over and over again. I mean, you got to do a couple of times so that you, you get... But you don't need all 12 to be persuaded by every single point that you're making. I mean, you need four to be persuaded by this point. And then you might make another point that that picks up another three. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what Sarah would do when she was the was the Speaker of the House in Maine. She'd go around and she'd collect votes. I get four here. I go pick up three here by making two separate arguments. So I think that that's kind of an important thing. You don't try to hit a home run with each point with all 12 jurors. You're just trying to pick up votes along. Well, Tom, I really appreciate your time today. The hours flown by. We could continue this conversation uh, for hours, and I would enjoy it. I hope you'll come back and on the show in the future, and, and I will promise I'll give you the guarantee that we'll dredge Raul up out of bed or, or wherever he is to be here. Because, well, you uh, know, Ben, I, I'm going to tell you something. I have never, ever judged a party you know, by who didn't come. I just judge parties by who did come. And I mean, Raul chose not to come. He's made his decision. There may be repercussions. He may not know what they are yet, but surely uh, uh, they're coming. Uh, and, uh, but I I really enjoyed it. I, 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 I want to tell everybody you do this uh, podcast thing and this is, and I'm glad that folks are doing this. I love podcasts and I, I've now had a chance to be on a couple of them. But I think that what you're doing is great. It's good for lawyers. It's fun. I mean, it's fun to have uh, people talk about it. And uh, 
so that your audience uh, knows Ben Gideon is a is a is a is, is I can't call him an up and coming superstar because he's already a superstar. Uh, I just wish I had his age uh, and his talent because uh, uh, there are a lot of clients that are going to come see you that are going to be well served by your by your representation. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Ben. Much appreciated. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.